welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. What is terrorist financing? With Professor Nicholas Ryder. In a series of summer podcasts and briefing papers that Themis will be hosting on terrorist financing, Very Chon, MD of Themis Community, talks to Nick Ryder, Professor of Financial Crime at Bristol Business and Law School, about the basics of what is terrorist financing. They discuss the impact of how the money laundering regime and relevant UN conventions and EU directives related to money laundering have shaped the policy on terrorist financing. Current threats are discussed that range from cyber and crypto methods of moving money for terrorist aims to the impact COVID-19 may have had on terrorist funding. Welcome to this podcast, Themis podcast on terrorist financing. I'm Viri Chauhan and I'm the MD for Themis Community. Today, this podcast is brought to you with Professor Nick Ryder from the University of West of England. Nick is an expert and leader in the subject of terrorist financing. He's written many books and publications on the subject and has worked widely in the field in the private sector and in government agencies. This is going to be the first of two podcasts. Uh, This one's going to deal mainly with the basics of terrorist financing. Uh, First of all, let me introduce Nick. Hello, Nick. Hi, Vary. How are you? I'm very well, Nick. If we could start by just going into some explainers, could you tell us what you understand to be terrorist financing? Uh, Yeah, of course. Um, The the classic um, and probably the most simplest definition of terrorism financing is reverse money laundering. So in your normal money laundering process, as your um, previous listeners will, will, will know, you place layer and, and integrate the money into the financial system and try to hide and disguise your proceeds of crime. Uh, terrorism financing is the opposite process. So in 99.9% of most terrorism financing uh, instances or cases, the terrorists will use clean money and then they will take that to promote a particular um, ideology or to promote an act of terrorism. So normally terrorists will, will be able to obtain clean money uh, and then use it for laundering purposes. So what you will normally find is that a lot of the finances that terrorists will use could be, for example, from misapplied charitable donations. So whereby the person giving the money to what they perceive is a legitimate lawful charity and be known to them it will then be used um, to fund acts of terrorism, which, according to um, previous research uh, in the area, uh, was a very popular method in terms of how Al-Qaeda were financed. I see. Okay. So you, you use the term reverse money laundering uh, and, and clean money. So does that mean that it's more difficult to try to identify the sources uh, of terrorist financing? Uh, yes, um, and one of the, the, the major reasons for that um, is that the, the international anti-money laundering model, um, heavily influenced by the three UN conventions and 
six MLDs with the European Union, and of course the the FATF amended recommendations. Uh, they're all geared towards tackling money laundering, and in a 2018 paper, we concluded that that can be referred to as the profit reporting model, or the proceeds of crime reporting model. And after 9/11, the United Nations and the European Union and FATF, I think mistakenly, used the profit reporting model to tackle terrorism financing. And of course, the, the, the two are significantly different. So where money laundering will involve the proceeds of crime, and as we've seen through um, various organized crime syndicates and through um, how terrorists can be financed, you're not talking small sums of money here. But terrorists will not necessarily transfer larger sums of cash. They will try to avert transposing any money within the reporting sector. So they will, as you said, indicating your question, making it very difficult to detect because you, the the terrorism typology, terrorism financing typologies will be significantly different from how money laundering will occur. Okay, so you you mentioned uh, a, a couple of international um, regulations. You mentioned the uh, the money laundering directives from the. Uh, European Union, and you mentioned some of the United Nations conventions that address address this. So, are you suggesting that that legislation, which is primarily initially been money laundering focused, has been misapplied to deal with terrorist financing? Uh, yes, uh, the, uh, the the terrorist attacks in in, in America in September two thousand. Um, were a, a need, a sort of a, a galvanizing factor for the international community, largely led by the US, to tackle terrorism financing. And scholars at the time, going back nearly 20 years ago, were, were very skeptical whether the money laundering model would be the most effective to tackle terrorism financing. And if you look back at the history of the UN provisions, and in particular the US provisions, um, they've been heavily influenced by the use of the term suspicious activity or suspicious transaction. And that is probably one of the central tenets or pillars of the US uh, and global money laundering policies. So the initial reaction by the United Nations uh, was just before 9-11, and that was the uh, 1999 International Convention on the Suppression of Terrorism Financing. Uh, we'll just call it the convention for now. It'll save me repeating that on numerous occasions. So the the Nigerian convention was largely based um, on presidential executive orders signed by Bill Clinton after the Al Qaeda attacks in Kenya and Tanzania, and the convention was only signed by between four to six countries before 9/11. Since 9/11, it's now been signed up by over 135 different countries. So it's become a, a very important international provision, but it's based upon looking for the proceeds of crime. And that's why I think the, the model is, is fundamentally flawed, sadly, and it needs to be carefully uh, reconsidered by uh, the various institutions that I mentioned previously. Okay. So in terms of historical events, it was 9-11 it was that really changed the nature of uh, the legislation and the, the, 
the sort of standards going forward on terrorist financing? Uh, ab absolutely. Uh, I think from a, an international um, perspective, yes, uh, the UK can be contrasted because the UK had a very has a very long established history of tackling terrorism financing with the domestic terrorism in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. So, uh, according to many many studies, uh, the laws date back to the nineteenth uh, and twentieth century, and the the UK. Uh, has had some success disrupting the, the finances of the IRA and, and other uh, what we call sort of domestic terrorist groups. Um, but 9-11, absolutely, it is a catalyst. And what we've ended up with since is a, uh, if I can call it, it's a plethora of sort of initiatives, international, regional and domestic laws, which form part of what you know George Bush famously referred to in the Rose Garden strategy in September 2001 as, as the war on terrorism or the global war on terrorism uh, what what we found um, is that nobody really defined what are the financial aspects of the global war on terrorism uh, so over a four-year period uh, I was involved in writing a, a, a research book as it was that um, defined the financial war on terrorism and I still think it's the only book that's done that in in the particular area so it, it looked at the UN provisions, EU provisions, FATF recommendations, and other best practices to try to figure out um, what that what that term actually meant. Um, so at least now we have a working definition of of what makes up the financial war on terrorism. But as we said, it is heavily influenced very on on the international money laundering provisions. Sure, sure. So then, if we if we then turn to um the current terrorist financing regime uh, for our members, you know, what, what should we be aware of at the moment in terms of, you know, basics? Uh, I, I think in terms of, of the, uh, the basic legal obligations for um, your, your members and, and colleagues to comply with, obviously we have the 2000 Terrorism Act, and the, the use of Defence Against Terrorism Financing Suspicious Activity Reports, are the mouthful for you. Um, but also it's very important to, to be familiar with the provisions of Part 7 of the 2002 Proceeds of Crime Act. So it is about implementing a robust uh, KYC regime, customer due diligence, and making sure that you know your, your colleagues, customers, companies that you work with are, are up to date on, I suppose, the, the current terrorism financing trends. And that's an evolving, highly sophisticated, yet in some cases, quite a simple way in which they're financed. And it's about making sure that they, you know, they are aware of the perceived threats and the emerging funding mechanisms which have been used by, by terrorists. Okay. So, there's sort of uh, you, you mentioned a couple of the the key legislations in the UK uh, that will require members uh, and our com companies to comply with specific requirements, um, which are obviously driven by either the Financial Action Task Force and regional legislation. So presumably, other countries. Uh, would would follow similar provisions from international conventions, etc. Is that right? 
Yeah, they would do absolutely. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that the so the financial action task force um, are the best international practice, the sort of the gold standard or barometer in terms of the recommendations, and they will undertake a mutual evaluation report of how different countries will will comply with uh, its recommendations and, of course, the implementation of the international counterterrorism financing strategies. Uh, the, the UK, um, under a new methodology, received the highest rating in December 2018 in their fourth mutual evaluation report. So other countries like Australia, America, Canada, um, Saudi Arabia, um, Bahrain, will implement or try, attempt to implement a very robust counterterrorism financing regime based upon the FATF recommendations, but also the the core principles of the UN uh, Security Council resolutions that were implemented just after the attacks in uh, in America in September 2001. Okay, that's fine. So I understand that. So in in terms of um, the current regime, uh, you've explained that really well for us. In terms of the, the the main threats at the moment, what do you see that to be? Um, that's a good question. Um, we've um, published a new paper, which is out later this year, or early next year, in the Journal of Business Law. And the, uh, the, the paper looked at the sort of um, emerging trends of terrorism financing, but it, it investigated the perceived threat from terrorism financing by crypto assets. Obviously, that term can be given a broad interpretation. It could be cryptocurrencies, also virtual currencies, but I'm using the terminology used by the Financial Conduct Authority. There's crypto assets and the use of social media platforms. Um, within that paper, we were able to identify um, several cases, primarily from America, where we were able to, to find um, successful convictions brought by the Department of Justice where people been attempting to um, advise, in particular, ISIS of how to mine Bitcoin and then communicating via social media platforms. Um, and I think in March this year, one of the cases, uh, a lady called Zubia Hussein, who committed bank fraud, about $28,000, attempted to transfer some of that to ISIS via Bitcoin. And she was convicted and is now serving 13 years imprisonment. So that's just one of the uh, cases, and in another rather sad case, uh, a 17 year old student was given 11 years imprisonment advising ISIS and on Twitter how to mine Bitcoin through his Twitter handle. So it's beginning to become more and more evident in our research and the findings that there was a particular weakness in the, I suppose, how the counterterrorism financing regime applied to crypto assets in particular. And you look at the history of crypto assets in the dark web, Silk Road, Western Union, very well documented cases of um, illegal activity on the dark web. But what we were also able to find is that, and this is what we looked in particular at the reporting obligations in the UK, is do they apply to payments made via social media platforms? And from our understanding, they do apply. But that then raises the question, who reports? So if you, for example, made a, a Facebook messenger payment from person A to person B of £30, and it's deemed to be suspicious by Facebook, the Facebook report it, 
do Santander report it or Barclays? So you've got a real uncertainty there. So we identified a number of weaknesses within the, the UK's regime and, and made some, hopefully some important recommendations, uh, which I'd be happy to discuss either now or uh, later on in terms of questions. So the crypto assets were a, a significant threat. And in a new paper, which is out later next year, um, we think we've identified a new terrorism financing fraud typology. And what we've been able to do is to build on existing work by the Financial Action Task Force, the IMF, and other pieces of work by scholars to actually make the, the typology more substantive based upon um, case law and judicial precedent. So that sure. shows uh, terrorism financiers have, have a fraud dossier, like a black book, if you like, of what frauds they can commit to low level frauds which will avoid detection by law enforcement agencies. So you have the advances of technology and then back to basics with, with fraud, which is how the IRA were financed for decades. Yes, okay. So it looks like te technology is another enabling factor here. And at the start, you mentioned that actually uh, clean money can be used, i.e. legitimate money can be used for uh, terrorist financing purposes, but also that example that you've just provided there, that's uh, sort of uh, criminal proceeds being used for financing terrorism. So both both apply here. So if I, if I can move on to some more sort of current uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> sort of affairs globally, uh, and I'm not sure if this, is, this has had an impact, but things, events like COVID-19, and, and similar types of events, do they actually uh, feature uh, in the terrorist financiers' tool book to take advantage of? Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, it's quite difficult to say without any substantive evidence. I mean, what we have seen, of course, with COVID is a significant increase of, of fraudulent activity um, with regards to, um, I'm sure we've all had the random text from the British government regarding payments and continued receive emails uh, linked into COVID. Terrorism financing is a little bit difficult to, to specifically say, but what, what we might find is that, um, and this has been reported in the news recently, what we might find, of course, with, with the height of the lockdown is that people are going to become more lonely and might be more susceptible to radicalization. Um, but I can't say categorically that that has happened and hopefully we, we won't see any cases. But if anything, what, what COVID would probably do is it will illustrate the importance of, of increased um, scrutiny and awareness of how people interact on social media, how people interact on Skype, Zoom, and other forms of communication and, and sort of encrypted messaging like WhatsApp and Telegram. So it, it's, it's possible that um, people will be advised by terrorism financiers on how they are able to acquire funding, whether that be through debit card fraud, as we've seen with the Salman Abedi case, or whether that through personal loan fraud, because they can be very susceptible to um, terrorism, terrorists acquiring financing via basic white collar crime. Okay, so it's, 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 it's clear from what you've said that there's been a marked increase in, in fraud and financial crime due to COVID that could be, that could be taken advantage of by uh, uh, people who want to 
to use the financing for terrorist purposes. I understand that. Okay, Nick. Well, um, we're going to come to a close to this this first podcast. But before we do, could you sort of give us, uh, I suppose, some uh, tips in terms of for our, our members if they want to become more familiar with uh, terrorist financing and how to how to manage it? What what sources or what tips would you provide? Uh, I think in terms of sources, um, I, I would obviously highly recommend being familiar with uh, the Financial Action Task Force's recommendations and typologies. Uh, I think that's an excellent place to start. Uh, I think secondly, it, it's important to engage with the uh, UK's national risk assessments from 2015 and 2017, and the economic crime plan. And, and thirdly, um, I would strongly recommend that, that your, uh, your listeners um, engage with academic research. Uh, there are a few of us that write on counterterrorism financing, not many of us as compared to money laundering, but you know there are some excellent bodies of work. Um, there's Dr. Colin King, uh, Professor Clive Walker. Uh, I've written a few publications on terrorism financing, and there are others. So I think it's important to you know to to look at the university repositories uh, and to find out what what we've written and what our views are. Um, some of them involve uh, empirical fieldwork, which leads to some very interesting sets of conclusions and recommendations as well. Well, that's really good advice. Um, thank you so much for joining us on this first podcast. It's been a, a pleasure to have you uh, give us uh, an explainer on terrorist financing uh, and look forward to the second one. Thank you. Thanks, very. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.